RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your internet privacy by visiting expressvpn.com slash missionlog, and you can get three extra months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash missionlog to protect your data. This episode is also brought to you by Mint Mobile. To get your new unlimited wireless plan for just 30 bucks a month, and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash missionlog. That's mintmobile.com slash missionlog. Cut your unlimited wireless bill to 30 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 374, by Inferno's Light. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take an in-depth look at the morals, meanings, and messages in each and every episode of Star Trek. And by the end of our heroic journey, there will be statues erected in our honor. Uh, Norm, that that's not what this is all about. We're here to uh, really... Oh, yeah, I, I, no, I, I know. I, I know. Um, forgive me. I, I forgot. Not just statues of us, but of Rod... And Earl and Ken as well. I, see that still not what I meant. Um, I, I was thinking more about what something else. Uh, it's yeah, not really. What All right. Was, well, to quote the great intellectual Ron Burgundy, "Agree to disagree." But one thing we can agree on are the ways that you can stay in touch with us. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful, and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod, or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com, and remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now here's John Champion with this week's trivia. Oh, and speaking of trivia, I'm five foot seven, so I just want to make sure that that's out there so my statue is scaled correctly. Not about the statue, Norman. Okay, uh, by Inferno's Light. It was written by Iris Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf. No surprise there, of course. They wrote the previous installment in Purgatory Shadow, and they conceived of the story as a whole, as opposed to something like a season-ending two-parter where very often you leave certain threads unresolved until another writer crafts away out of the situation that someone else devised. This episode is directed by Les Landau, a name very familiar to those of us who have been following a lot of modern Trek. You'll recall he was the first assistant director on many TNG episodes, and then he was uncredited when he finished Code of Honor after Russ Mayberry left. He's got a hand in TNG, DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise, and I found it interesting that he even directed the video segments of the 1993 board game Star Trek The Next Generation, A Klingon Challenge. 
In that, you had the voice talent of Jonathan Frakes as Commander Riker, and you even had Robert O'Reilly, but not as Gowron. Rather, he was playing a Klingon called Kovac for that one. John, if I, if I might jump in for a mm-hmm. second, that's a very sought-after collectible for collectors. Yes. Yes. But the thing is, is that so are VHS players. <laughs> yes. Not the easiest. You might have to go through the whole, you might have to have that VHS tape transferred over to a digital medium. Yeah. Yeah, that would be tough. Oh, oh, and by the way, uh, just so I don't get emails about this, uh, Kvok, not Kovac, not to be confused with the late, great Ernie Kovacs, definitely did not play a Klingon. Now, uh, this episode, of course, is the second part of a two-parter, as you well know. Um, Interestingly, Ira felt like uh, they would have played better as a two-hour special, since he felt like the pacing was lopsided with all the action taking place in the second part. We'll uh, see where we land on that. Let's talk about our guest stars. Uh, Well, since it is a two-parter, we mostly have the returning guests from the previous episode. Melanie Smith here in her second appearance as Torres Zial. Her father, Gull Dukat, is Mark Alimo. Uh, then Galron and Martok, their show, <laughs> back courtesy of Robert O'Reilly and J.G. Hertzler. Then there's James Horan again as Ikatika. One new face this week is Ray Buktenica as Vorta named Deus. Uh, Ray is a fairly recognizable actor, partly because of numerous TV appearances, like playing Rhoda's boyfriend Benny on Rhoda. Uh, There are also a few feature films under his belt, like the 1976 version of King Kong and later My Girl. Uh, He did just one episode of Fantasy Island, but oh man, oh man, he did three episodes of The Love Boat, This is his only Star Trek appearance. Nobody wants a statue of their friendly neighborhood computer? Let's see how they feel about this the next time their holodeck safeties fail. Last time on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Garrick and Worf went into the Gamma Quadrant only to find themselves locked up on a Jem'Hadar prison asteroid where they find the real Martok and the real Dr. Bashir, which means someone on DS9 is not who he says he is. Then Garrick has to confront a dying Inabrintain, who happens to be his father. And now the conclusion. There are a whole lot of Dominion ships that just made their way through the wormhole, which means every available ship at DS9 and the station itself take up a defensive posture. Those ships don't stay for a fight, though. They set a course for Cardassia. And falling right behind them is Gul Dukat, who shares a few parting words with Kira. He is the one who set this up. He has been secretly negotiating with Dominion, to form an alliance with Cardassia. See ya. Act 1. News travels fast. On the prison asteroid, an announcement is made by the Vorta in charge, Deos, that all Cardassian prisoners are free because of the new treaty. Cardassians except for Garrick. It seems he is not well-liked by the new head of the government, Gul Dukat. Speaking of... He wastes no time in giving a system-wide announcement that all Klingons and Maquis will be eradicated from Cardassian space. Watching on a monitor from DS9, Kira tells Sisko that the next time she sees Dukat, she'll kill him. 
They have another problem on their hands, the matter of who sabotaged the station's emitters, which not only failed to seal the wormhole, but actually managed to make it more stable than before, thus an easier way for Dominion ships to come through. Remember that the Bashir on the station isn't really Bashir? Let's call him Gooey Bashir. He speaks up. It's probably a changeling. They'd better do some blood tests, to which Cisco agrees, and they'll supplement it with phaser sweeps. Act 2. Back on the prison asteroid, the real Bashir and his cellmates are encouraging Garrick, who is behind the wall plating in their cell, trying to restore the transmitter that Tane had jerry-rigged before his passing. If they can get it working, there's a chance they can remotely call up the runabout, pull it to them, and transport to safety. They all quickly hide what they've been up to when a few of the guards approach their room, demanding to take Worf. It's time for him to go through the same kind of thing Martok has been for so long. He'll be forced into hand-to-hand combat with the Jem'Hadar soldiers in training to take on the Klingons they'll soon face in battle. The rules are pretty simple. Stay in the ring, beat the tar out of each other, and make sure you touch one of three lighted posts each time you get knocked down right before going back into the fight. It begins, and Worf takes down the first Jem'Hadar in pretty short order, only to be told by Ikataka that the next opponent will be more of a challenge. Meanwhile, the game of cat and mouse continues in the holding cell where Garrick is a trapped, agitated mouse who is finding the working conditions very difficult. Bashir tells him he's got to take it easy. Back on DS9, Zial stares out into space when she's approached by Kira. Zial wants to believe Garrick will come zooming through the wormhole on a runabout in no time, but Dukat has tried to convince her that Garrick is dead. Hard to trust his word on anything, Kira says, and Zial seems to be at a turning point, realizing that someone's actions are more important than what they say. The Klingon fleet has arrived at DS9, and Gowron comes aboard needing some attention in the infirmary. It's the perfect opportunity for Sisko to level with the Chancellor. They face a common and terrible enemy now. Perhaps now is a good time to revive the treaty between the Federation and the Empire, especially since DS9 stands in the middle of the Dominion's path toward the Empire. Having overheard all of this, Gui Bashir now heads to the runabout Yukon to make some sort of modification. Who knows what that will do? Act 3. Worf is still up to his ridges and fighting off Jem'Hadar. He has won five in a row, which really impresses Martok and even Ikatika. Worf is a little worse for wear, though. He's got broken ribs and who knows what else. Dr. Bashir wants him to take it easy. But you know what they say, Klingon's got a Klingon, so Worf says he'll be back at it tomorrow. Also having a rough time is Garrick, stuck inside that wall trying to fix a transmitter. It seems he's got a harsh streak of claustrophobia. When the work light goes out, he starts to lose it even more, banging on the walls around him until Bashir can go fish him out. He'll need lots of rest to soothe his frayed nerves. On the station, there was more sabotage, this time in an industrial replicator, and no saboteur to be found. While they're trying to figure that out, a call comes from Dukat for Cisco. This time, he's being so generous as to offer up a bargain. Tell the Federation to join with the Dominion and save billions of lives. Oh, and he's coming to take back Deep Space Nine. 
to which Sisko says, no deal. Act 4. Despite being injured, Worf still proved to be a worthy opponent again today. He won seven straight fights in the ring, but he is definitely worse for wear. Martok tries to cheer him up with the promise of a song about his victories. There won't be a song if they don't get out of here, though, and Garrick rallies himself to go back into the tight workspace to get cracking on the transmitter again. Back on DS9, the mood is tense, what with the impending arrival of the Dominion. Chief O'Brien stops by to see Gui Bashir and is almost tipped off to the reality of the situation when the doctor talks about ordering new darts rather than being alarmed about what's coming. Torres Zial is enjoying a meal at Quark's, but Quark is lamenting the fact that his business will probably take a hit since the changelings and the Jim Hadar don't indulge in the vices he caters to. Maybe the Vorta will be better customers. Finally, Sisko announces to Ops that a Starfleet task force is getting closer to their position. Getting ready to go into the ring one more time, Worf is clearly worse for wear. His sense of honor propels him to go forward, though, which surprises Deus. It doesn't surprise Hikataka, though. He presents himself as Worf's next worthy challenger. The fight begins again. While this is happening, Garrick is hard at work on the transmitter when Jem'Hadar guards come into the cell looking to execute the Cardassian. Bashir and the other prisoners, the Breen and the Romulan, all do what they can to stall for time, but eventually the guards grow impatient, start roughing things up, and discover the tool the prisoners have been using to loosen the wall panels. Checking with the enormous battle preparations going on at Deep Space Nine, the Defiant is deployed with Dax and Kira, among others. Then Gui Bashir slips himself into the runabout Yukon and knocked out its crew before faking one of their voices and taking off. Just about then, Sisko gets a surprise when a new fleet shows up for reinforcement. The Romulans! It's an Alpha Quadrant combo platter ready to take on anything the Dominion can throw at them, and good timing, too, because the Defiant reports that Dominion ships are about ten minutes away. Act 5. Things are not looking good for anyone on the prison asteroid. While Worf is taking a beating, and, sure, getting in some good licks, too, Martok is trying to talk him into stopping. Honor has been satisfied. Back in the cell, the Jem'Hadar guards are growing even more impatient and one discovers that loosened wall panel and how the tool they found just pops it right out. One guard sticks his head in and sees nothing, thankfully, because Garrick's light keeps burning out. But in that time, the Breen prisoner manages to disarm and kill one of the Jim Hadar and dies in a simultaneous firefight with another, opening it up for Bashir to kill the last one. Knowing that more guards will be on their way, the doctor implores Garrick to hurry with his work on the transmitter. In that time, Worf is still taking a pounding in the ring, but simply won't admit defeat. It's Sikataka who calls it. He yields the fight, says the only outcome would be to kill Worf, and that no longer has any interest for him. Deus is outraged and orders the others to shoot them both, but just at that moment a transporter beam activates and brings Worf, Martok, Bashir, Garrick, and the Romulan all back to the runabout. Garrick's hard work paid off, and now they are on their way back to DS9. 
What will they find when they get there, though? Hard to say. The station is ready for an epic battle with hundreds of assembled Alpha Quadrant ships all around. Here's the weird thing, though. Those Dominion ships keep popping up, only they don't. Warp signatures appear all around, but there are no actual ships can be spotted or targeted. Then another really odd thing happens. A message from Dr. Bashir from the Gamma Quadrant. The pieces come together for Cisco. If Bashir is sending a message from the Gamma Quadrant, then that must be a changeling on DS9. The computer reports his last known location as being the launch pad for the runabout, which prompts Cisco to give new orders to the Defiant. Take down the Yukon. Destroy it and Gui Bashir along with it. On board the Yukon, Gui Bashir has made modifications to the shields, which prevents Defiant's weapons from having any effect. But what's he up to? Scans reveal he's packing some enormously powerful explosives on board and is heading right for the sun, which would, in turn, make it go supernova and wipe out everything in the system. Thinking fast, Kira commands a risky, short-range jump to warp in order to grab the Yukon and a tractor beam and tow it to a safe distance, where it definitely explodes and takes out Gui Bashir, but at least there's no more threat to Bajor's son or to the entire fleet of ships nearby. Which leaves Sisko to ponder this. What about all those Dominion ships? What Dominion ships? There's no sign of them, which means the warp signatures were faked, and that means this whole thing was a ruse to collect as many Alpha Quadrant ships in harm's way of a supernova as possible and lead to a Dominion victory without them even firing a shot. Armageddon will have to wait another day. A sigh of relief goes through DS9. Zial is pleased to see Garrick, Miles is pleased to see the real Bashir, and Dax is pleased to have Worf back. That just leaves us with Sisko and Gowron to solidify their alliance against future threat from the Dominion. The Klingons have agreed to a permanent presence on the station, and Sisko has an inspired choice for that commander, General Martok. The celebration is short-lived, though. Sisko gets another call from Dukat, who congratulates the commander for saving so many lives, but still Dukat is getting a monument in his honor for restoring greatness to Cardassia. And even if Sisko saved the day this time, there's always tomorrow. The End. John, you know, after every recap, as epic as that, I love handing out plus ones. Oh, okay. Cool. Thank you. And you're going to get a plus one for Gooey Bashir. Oh. Because now that is headcanon to me. <laughs> I just, look, I hope that we get a uh, an action figure one day, the Gooey Bashir action figure. Is that going to be a variation of Stretch Armstrong? We'll just put Sid's head on it. Now you have Gooey Bashir. Pretty much. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm going to give you an idea for another uh, action figure. This one, of course, the new Vorta that we met. Deus! 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 <laughs> yeah. Jimhead.com, and we want to go to the wormhole. Had to, right? Had to, we had Something to do it. Something like that. Sorry, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, for action figures uh, purposes, you won't have to worry about different molds for different hairdos, because I think 
all the Vorta have the same hairstyle? Yeah, isn't that interesting? All the male Vorta. All the anyway. male Vorta. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it is one of those monoculture things. It's like you, you, you know, Vulcans, Romulans, uh, you just start with the hairstyle. And that's once you establish that, here you go. We're going to build a culture around that. And, and speaking of monocultures, I do love, now this was a, a reuse of a shot that we had seen before, but um, I, I do love the details of the Cardassian society and, and just that, that Big Brother-esque, you know, we, if we're going to transmit something, it's going to everybody. You are all going to see the same broadcast. No commentary, just this is what you get. Unless, of course, you're either a mother or a daughter, because talk about some shade being thrown at the women of that culture. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Right. Remember when Dukat said about bringing Cardassia back to greatness, mm -hmm. make Cardassia great again, if you will. This I vow with my life's blood for my son and for all our sons. And all the daughters are like, thanks, Dad. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think he's taking a shot at Zial there. I, I think so, too. I mean, there, there is a personal stake there for uh, Dukat. We've seen some strong Cardassian women before, uh, but I, I think this time it's personal. Oh, hey, uh, the, the Breen, we haven't seen much of the Breen. We, we just had that one moment in the uh, prison in Indiscretion uh, where we met Zial. Um, but here we have a little better look at the Breen outfit. Uh, reminds me a little bit of uh, Princess Leia's uh, uh, bounty hunter uh, costume <laughs> when she's in uh, Jabba's palace, you know, with that, that helmet with the little slit in the front. I just, I always think of that when I see this. Bausch. Bausch was the name of that bounty. Was that that? Or at, okay. least the name, yeah, yeah. at least the name of, of, of the action figure. It would have been awesome yeah. if Bashir like, looked at the Breen and said, who are you? And then the Breen takes off his helmet. <laughs> and then friend. it's like, Lita. Yeah. It's like someone who loves you. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was it. That was it. Somebody <laughs> loves you. I love it. But never turn your backs on the Breen. No. No, definitely don't do that. That was a good moment. That, that was some yeah. good uh, firefight in that episode. Um. I do love, among many good moments, I love the Klingon obsession with songs. You know, operas, stories of battle. We've talked a lot more about those in DS9, really, than ever before. And, and I love the idea that Bashir might make it into one, and Garrick, too. Yeah, just you got to tell the whole story. <laughs> so that's, that's, I think Wagner was a Klingon then, or at least was a Klingon Must inspired. Must have been. Right? Absolutely, yeah. Hey, um, question for you. This is just a weird technical note. Uh, there was some weird framing for me almost 28 minutes in uh, where it's a, uh, an exterior shot of DS9 and some ships mm -hmm. flying by. There was like some weird white streaky lines on either side. of that. I wonder if that was from the video transfer or if it's an original element that just made it into the transfer. Did that happened for you too? It did. I, I was okay. streaming mine from CBS All Access. I have not checked my DVD yet. Okay. to see if it's the same uh, transfer issue. Yeah. But it basically was that uh, establishing shot of the Klingons, yep. you know, uh, orbiting Deep Space Nine yeah. uh, as it moved from one scene to the other. So that yeah, was a little strange. Yeah, yeah, a little. I, you know, I, I hate to point out just kind of like weird anomalies like that because you never know. But yeah, strange that that was in there. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the scenes I liked quite a bit was when Kira and Zial were talking about um, Dukat's intentions or... Uh, his uh, ulterior motives. And I liked it because it was somewhat of a bookend to the conversation that Dukat and Kira had pretty much in the same place, you mm -hmm. know, in the, I think they were both in the replimat mm -hmm. and it's, it's like Kira being the, the mother figure for Zial trying to basically warn her that your man, uh, your dad is a bad man. Yeah. 
you know, and I'm not saying this just to say it. I'm saying it because check out his track record. Yeah. And now, did you see what he said about for my sons? Ooh. Did you see that on Cardassia? Because I could play it back for you if you want to see yeah. how he doesn't mention daughters at all yeah. in that. So I, I'm fascinated by Zial, and I'm glad that I, I know that we're getting more of her in future episodes. This is such an interesting and sympathetic character, somebody who was you know, born in this uh, uh, very difficult circumstance for Dukat, and he disowns her, and he'd rather she be at a prison planet than he accept the reality of her as his daughter, but then she's not accepted even when he breaks her out of there, and he was ready to kill her. And then here's seeing his change into the bad guy that he really is. Uh, so for her to be as uh, well-balanced as she is, it's a pretty remarkable thing, and I'm curious to see what more we get out of her. Um, really enjoyed the conversation between her and Quark uh, when she's there. She says, uh, for all we know, the Vorta could be gluttonous, alcoholic, sex maniacs. And, and Quark, so funny. Quark's intrigued. Like, ooh, ooh I, I never thought of that. <laughs> you know. But, <laughs> but what was interesting about that scene is, is that it's interesting to see people who are at the bottom rungs you know they're not commanders they're they're not part of the military they're they're just mm -hmm. the 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 innocent bystanders of whatever is going to happen in this potential war here and they're mm -hmm. just having to deal with the reality of a potential regime change and to see them play it out there's no panic and there's not a rallying to arms there's not anger because quark's been through this now twice at least there's right. just the acceptance of a change coming and we have to deal with it as the best yeah, we Yeah, there can. is kind of like a survivalist instinct that's kicking in mm -hmm. here, you know? And I think that there was a, there was a scene earlier on um, with, remember with Quark and Garrick, and they were talking about root beer? Yes, right, right. That was supposed to be the kind of the regime change when the Klingons were like basically stomping their way through the Alpha Quadrant on yeah. their way to DS9. And if the Klingons won the war, yeah. you know, this is obviously when Gowron wasn't outed yet, um, but that was the same kind of conversation. You know, if we're going to go, hey, here's to the new regime change. I better stock up on blood wine. Right. And root right. beer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. Um, I, speaking of Garrick, <laughs> I love this a terrific moment with him when he, he's, uh, his claustrophobia is kicking in. He, he's behind that wall panel. Tane, you may not have been much of a father to me, but I wish you were alive right now. That way you could be here instead of me. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. I love it. And just can, perfectly in character for... Uh, can I ask you a serious question? Of course. Are there ever non-amazing moments with Garrick? Seriously? Uh, no. No. There, there are no non-amazing moments with Garrick. Yeah. Then my, my theory of Garrick is the bacon of Star Trek still holds true. Uh, it does. And it's Andy Robinson who can take a line and just squeeze every ounce of meaning and nuance and subtext right out of it this line you didn't need a lot of subtext but he mm -hmm. he just nailed it he's so good now it, it's interesting to me I, I i know that the dominion are fearsome enemies and i know that the combined forces of the federation and klingons and romulans are huge uh but i, I just have to throw this out there did maybe the dominion at all at some point strategize that, that they could just go around them 
they definitely sun sued them in this sense. Well, in in know, this the, sense, yes, yes. But yeah. you know, with, with the, the the possibility here, you've got Cisco going. Okay, we're going to assemble everybody here at DS Nine, and um, we'll be around in the general area of DS Nine. I'm just going to say, space is a very big place. Operates in all three dimensions, <laughs> so that two dimensional thinking might get you in trouble someday, or so I've heard. It's a bad pattern. Yeah. You know, it's, um, I mean, you know, there's intelligence and experience. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. Mm-hmm. There you That's go. That's the difference. There you go. I, I really like the scene where, where Dr. Bashir, not because of the violence, because of the irony of it. Uh-huh. You know, in the firefight scene in the cell where the brain and the Jem'Hadar, yes. they fire at each other and they disrupt each other. Right. And there are punches and stuff. But all of a sudden, Bashir unsheaths a knife. Yes! Unsheaths a knife. Doesn't just yes! pick up a random knife. He purposefully unsheaths the knife and jams it right into the Ketrasol oh, light tube. Man, oh man. That, and yeah. that scene, I was like, for a doctor to choose to take a life like that yeah. was a very interesting decision on the writer's part because it also reminded me of that scene when, remember when, when Khan came to and he had the scalpel at Dr. McCoy's throat and he mm-hmm. says, you know, McCoy said, it would be most effective if you cut the carotid <laughs> artery just under the left ear. Yes, yes. You know, because doctors know how to instantly kill people right in the neck. And, and this is a Bashir that has been in that prison asteroid for at least a month or two. So right. he's been through some stuff. And yeah, that, that was... That was a really interesting choice and a good moment for him. And hey, let's not forget that uh, with Bashir there in some very good uh, scenes for the real Bashir, uh, not Gooey Bashir, the return (laughs) of the self-sealing stem bolt. Uh, But not really. Not really a self-sealing stem bolt. And and we have the reverse ratcheting router mentioned. So now two two pieces of DS9 technology. That was uh, a lot of fun. the, The best, though, was when they... I don't know. Maybe it was maybe it was purposeful on the writer's part. Maybe it was coincidental. But it's after he jams a knife in the in the Jem'Hadar's neck. Mm-hmm. He says, "Pretty soon we'll be up to our necks in Jem'Hadar." <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> wah, wah. oh irony. Uh, I, I will say. Uh, so let's go back to DS Nine for a minute. The scene between Gooey Bashir and O'Brien that was a little weird. I I, I honestly felt like uh, we didn't need it. Um, except that we have not had much of Miles in this two-parter. It, it was just sort of a non-starter. Like, we already know what Gui Bashir is and what he's up to. We didn't need another moment. So, honestly, it could have just been filler. Just, hey, we're we're running a minute and a half short on this one. But I get it. We got to get Miles in there somehow. Not uh, Not the strongest scene, I felt. Um, oh, but but also on DS9, asparagus with yamak sauce. Uh, not a lot of food in these episodes, but uh, I do love asparagus, so I, I'd probably eat it, even though I don't know exactly what yamak sauce is. Question, though, where is Quark getting fresh asparagus? Because how do you get fresh anything up there? If they have an arboretum, I want to see it, but... Um, yeah, this is kind of a weird choice. It's like, yeah, it's the last of my fresh asparagus. Oh, okay, uh, what, from Earth? Are <laughs> they just bringing it in? Please explain. Well, it is Quark, and Quark can market anything. Here's a fresh rock that I just yeah, dug yeah, up Yeah, right, you. right. <laughs> it's absolutely fresh. I dug it up today. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. But I'm sure some, some species eat rocks. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. 
Hey, how about that protomatter bomb, huh? Ooh, hey, yeah. Right? Serious. When's the last time you heard protomatter uh, aside from, and I'm, I'm sure that the experts out there know, but the last time I heard a reference to protomatter is when David Marcus used it as an element to try and finish the Genesis device. Truly the most important reference to protomatter. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and Romulans. You, you mentioned the Romulans yes. before. Now, it's an interesting thing, Romulans just showing up in this episode. There weren't no pretense. Uh-huh. They just kind of show up. Uh-huh. But when Romulans show up, they show up because there's something that affects the Romulans. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Romulans just don't, hey, what's up, yo? Yeah. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, what's exactly. going on, guys? They're like, oh, okay. Which Something's is interesting. Yeah. It, it always indicates that they have better intelligence than just about anybody. Like, they know where something's going to go down, when it's going to go down, and where to be. Because well, you figure with, like, the, um, with the annihilation of the Insidian Order, the Tal Shiar are pretty much the intelligence agency yeah. of the Quadrant. Yeah, I would think. Who who would uh, you trust more, Tal Shiar or Obsidian Order? I would trust Garrick. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> that is a very good point. Or oh, I can't jump the timeline here, can I? Uh, we'll we'll I, excuse it. I keep forgetting the character's name, but I love her to pieces in Picard. She's Tal Shiar. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So Ooh. for all of you out there. Send me the email telling me I don't know because I don't remember right now. Um, you know, I was disappointed a little bit about how quickly all the Jem'Hadar, the Jem'Hadar cadre on that prison planet turned on Ikataka. Mm-hmm. He just showed them all, like, this is how you defeat an opponent and here's how you lose or win honorably. Yeah. You know, I can't break Worf, which means I lost. You're supposed to break your opponent. If you don't, it's just straight out murder. Yeah. And then, and then the Vorta says, ah, just kill them both. Yeah. And the, the Geminar is like, all right, fine. Yeah. Like, did you learn nothing from like the eight <laughs> fights that you just saw? Nothing? Very, but it raises this interesting question about, you know, with the Jem'Hadar, when does that sense of honor kick in? And is that sense of honor uh, sort of a bug in the programming? Because the Jem'Hadar are designed, and the Vorta says, like, you were created to do this. You were designed to basically be this soldier that does what we tell you to do. A sense of honor helps with that if you're going to be a soldier for a cause, even if that mm-hmm. cause is twisted and weird. But that sense of honor then might prevent the outcome that the the, the controlling kind of puppeteer here, in this case, the, the Vorta, Deus, Deus, uh, <laughs> wants you to do. So, yeah. Oh, so many earwigs today, John. <laughs> so many earwigs. <laughs> Gui Bashir and Dale. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a weird nitpicky thing, yeah. but we are in observation, so we do nitpicking things. How exactly did the runabout transporter that Garrick barely activated, how did it transporter lock those specific people? Right. Okay. Uh, that is a really tough question. And... I, I did read some like fan theories online about that in my head. And this kind of is in alignment with uh, some of the stuff that I read. It made sense to me that we're, we're compressing a lot of time where there are scenes missing. And the idea sure. being that, okay, Garrick gets himself and, and possibly himself and Bashir to the runabout. And then there's enough time once they do that to program the transporter to bring up the Romulan from their cell. Then there's enough time to say, oh, and also lock on to the Klingons 
who are in there. So, but because it's a cut, what we're seeing is just, okay, boom, they're all on board. It kind of makes sense only because when we actually cut to the interior of the runabout, like Garrick's already in position at the helm. Oh, that makes sense. You You're know? right. So yeah. you could sort of fill that in and the head cannon, the world famous head cannon to say, because they are already in different positions, they had already taken the time to do this separately. So, okay. Yeah. That makes sense to me. I'm okay with that. However, here's another nitpicky <laughs> thing. Because that does make sense to me. Yeah. But when when Cisco identifies the Yukon having the changeling yeah. on board, yep. we also know that when Gui Bashir, um, he, when he uh, vo- was voicing the, the Starfleet officers, you know, was she, he was mimicking that officer's voice. Yeah. We saw other officers in the back. Now, we're not sure if they're dead or if they're unconscious. Yeah. But... They are definitely dead when the Yukon explodes. Yeah. And Cisco ordered the destruction of that without thinking about or referencing, are there any survivors on board that we can get out of there before we destroy the ship? And now I know that you're doing this at a clip and you have to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, keep the narrative moving. But there were dead, innocent officers on the Yukon. Yeah. All I kept thinking was, uh, okay, you've got people split up in different places. You've got Dax and Kira on the Defiant and and whomever else. Like, well, it's a good thing you didn't send O'Brien off on the Yukon, (laughs) you know? Yeah, yeah. Worry about that. And, you know, they didn't want to maybe, I don't know, because... I know that you're, you're pressed for time when you're a writer and you're not really thinking about these minor details, but... When the deaths of, you know, our heroic characters, mm-hmm. you know, Starfleet officers are part of the story. And the commander, he orders the destruction which causes the death of these people, his people, under his command. Mm-hmm. And it's not referenced, not even the slightest, then, because, like, what about if Kira just says, what about the crew members on that ship? Yes. Yeah. Cisco's like, I, I can't, he goes, it's the hardest decision I have to make or something like that. Yeah. Right, I always thought that captains were really committed to saving every single life of somebody under their command. Right, and, and you could—it uh, it might be too much. You might, again, to your point, you have to move the narrative along. But even just to say, like, oh, we can get a transporter lock on those two, or uh, find find any humans on board, or at least say that they're already dead. You know, they're... or just have them not in the background at all. Sure. Yeah, exactly. All right, that that would have solved um, that entire issue that I have with that scene. Yeah, (laughs) right. Um, The last thing I wanted to say, though, is that not knowing all of the episodes ahead, I know a couple Mm -hmm. because they are signature episodes. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, of course. But I do hope that female Romulan prisoner comes back in a way in that whole you know, our heroes are in a tight bind and all of a sudden this woman comes out from the shadows and she's a Romulan commander and it's the woman from the prison facility that they saved. And she says, you know, my father's a senator and I'll have him pardon these prisoners. I know them. They saved my life. Yeah, I I liked her and I felt like we didn't get enough out of her. Um, DS9 is not the Romulan focused Star Trek show. There are other Star Trek shows that are much more heavily Romulan focused, but as soon as I saw her on screen, I was like, Ooh, I want more of this. Uh, So I I would hope that you're right. Yeah. Well, I mean, we did see the other Romulan, but he lasted for all of what a second, (laughs) not long at all for a guy. (laughs) 
What mulls into Starfleet doctors and silly shapes? What bounces like a ball? What stretches and stretches? Gooey Basher can do it all. We'll get back to Phi Inferno's life in a moment. But first, a message from our sponsors, ExpressVPN and Mint Mobile. Hey, I've heard a lot of people recently talking about the documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And it's a, a pretty, um, well, pretty uh, uh, shaking uh, uh, documentary, uh, a serious look at social media and how our lives are basically gobbled up by these uh, data collectors through social media is kind of a terrifying thing. You know, your personal data gets harvested uh, so that tech billionaires can get richer and uh, you got to draw a line somewhere. And that's why I love the idea that ExpressVPN protects my data, my personal information going out on the internet. You know, it's funny that... When people first started getting involved with using a lot of data management, cell phones, iPads, things of that nature, Mm -hmm. you would think that there would have been a security advice that was a little bit more advanced in place. Because I think that the reason why so much of this mining is happening is because people never really took security seriously. And now you can use ExpressVPN because it's so easy to use. And every time you use the internet, all these big tech companies, if you're not protected, mine your data by tracking searches and your messages and video history. So unless you're protected, all of that is still untethered for them mm-hmm. to collect. But when you run ExpressVPN on your advice, it hides your IP address, which websites can use to identify you and probably even identify the device that you're on and all that information that is unprotected. So using ExpressVPN makes your activity more difficult to trace and then sell to advertisers. You still have to be careful with what you share on social media, but ExpressVPN can make your web browsing more anonymous and will keep you safe. So by in doing so, it encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and anyone who has prying eyes on the internet because there seems to be more people out there that can do that than before. Now, you know, some people, they're not savvy on things like VPNs because they use memory, they use the, these resources that may hog down your computer and slow it down a little bit, but not ExpressVPN. It's fast. It's easy to use. I use it every day on my devices. And you can check it with the app. One touch, you're protected. That's the thing that I really love about it is, you know, I literally have it installed in all of my devices. And when I'm using Wi-Fi anywhere, and I mean out public Wi-Fi and an office situation, and even especially at home, because I'm using sensitive data, you know, banking, paying bills, all of these things, I want to protect that information. And I, it scares me not even a little bit, the idea that there are companies that can grab your data, harvest that data, and sell it to the highest bidder. I want no part of that, so therefore I'm glad for the protection that ExpressVPN affords me. So if you don't like the idea of tech companies exploiting your personal information, then visit expressvpn.com slash mission log right now, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log to protect your data. Go to expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. 
And now, Norman, uh, let's talk about breaking up. Oh, wait, wait, I'm sorry. Not, not, not me and you. Not until I get my statue erected. <laughs> not until you get your statue. You're, you're still my brother in sound. We're not, we're not breaking up yet. No, we're going to talk about a much more important breakup, breaking up with your wireless provider. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that it, it sounds difficult. It sounds scary. But trust me, you can do this. They made it a whole lot easier at MintMobile.com. This is the first company to sell premium wireless service online only. And now Mint Mobile is introducing their unlimited data plan. Yes, you heard me, unlimited for 30 bucks a month. Just just think about that a second. Think about your bill at one of the big carriers and think about how much that is for unlimited. And then you think about Mint Mobile and you go, wow, 30 bucks? That is a lot less <laughs> than what I am paying now. Um, let's call that your soon-to-be X wireless provider that is overcharging you. You know, John, for people that hate their phone bill, because their phone bill can be large and can be cumbersome and can be very detrimental to their budget, take a look at what you're spending, what you're spending it on, your data usage, and then take a look at what Mint Mobile can offer you with their premium unlimited plan for just 30 bucks a month. The data that you use now versus data that you would use with Mint Mobile and the price that you would pay, the savings are enormous. So if you go online and eliminate your the traditional costs of retail, big box houses, staff, expertise, service, you can do all of that with Mint Mobile online, and they pass all of those savings on to you. So all the plans come with unlimited talk and text, high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network, and you still get to keep your phone, you still get to keep your number, and you still get to keep all of your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. So I know we're not breaking up. But we're encouraging you to break up with Big Wireless, and I think that you would be satisfied when you switch to Mint Mobile and their premium unlimited data plan for 30 bucks a month. And they make it easy, and you save yourself a bundle of money by the end of the month, and then multiply that for the whole year. Think about how much you'll save. So to get your new unlimited wireless plan for just 30 bucks a month and... To get that plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash mission log. That's mintmobile.com slash mission log. Cut your wireless bill to 30 bucks a month. I get 30 bucks unlimited at mintmobile.com slash mission log. Hey, let's talk about some strange bedfellows, shall we? <laughs> wow, uh, Ducat in particular and the Cardassians uh, in general. It's a very interesting choice to have done what they did through DS9, which is you, you set up this very complex Cardassian culture and complex individual Cardassians like Dukat, and then kind of tease us a bit with, um, oh, well, is he breaking? Is he softening a little bit? Nope. <laughs> We're going to show the value that the Cardassians and Dukat in particular places on power. They would rather form an alliance with the most powerful force they can than to fight for any sort of principle. Right? Like the, the principle is simply the power, the, the, the grab and the maintenance of power. Um, in a weird way, like it, it's almost heartbreaking to see. It's entirely believable, but it's interesting because, you know, over the course of this last five seasons... And they reference that very often, you know, Cisco saying, wow, I thought you changed in five years. Oh, I guess not. I know mm -hmm. that that allure of 
being back on top is all he needed to see. And then you get Goldicott making this. I won't call it a 180. He hadn't completely come around. There was still a little bit of a question. Who really is this guy? What does he really want? What's he up to? But, wow, they, they really drove a clean wedge, not only between him and Kira, but him and his own daughter. It's a pretty bold mm-hmm. choice. I got to say, I uh, found it pretty fascinating. I call this the parable of the Cardassian scorpion and the Bajoran frog. <laughs> Is that what they are, yeah? Well, I saw this in a scorpion and frog type of situation. And Mm -hmm. you can, you obviously, you know, Goldicott is a scorpion. And the frog could be the trust, the Federation, Cisco's trust, Kira's trust. Because we all know in that parable, the scorpion asked the frog to take him across the lake. I've also heard versions of the scorpion and the fox, but the, the end result is the same. Halfway across that lake, the scorpion stings whoever's giving it a ride in the back. They're both drowned because it's just in the nature of that scorpion to do so. Mm-hmm. And Dukat's power grab is just in his nature to do so. He's playing three-dimensional chess on a completely different level. Yeah. And even though the Kira is surprised with what he said, she's not entirely, I don't think it was entirely unexpected, which is she's like, I'm going to kill him. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. this is the last shred of trust that he's betrayed. And... That line at the end, one man's villain is another man's hero. Oh, I, I knew that would speak to you. Yeah. So we've discussed this before about Dakot and, and other characters like Eddington, mm-hmm. where they're the hero of their own story. And in Eddington's case, the romantic hero, the, the Valjean that's being chased by Javert. Mm-hmm. So depending on who you ask, because Dakot is bringing Cardassia back to a state of power, after it was you know, beaten down by the Klingons in that invasion, is he not the hero to Cardassians? Oh, a- a- absolutely. And, and, and not only is he a hero to Cardassians, I mean, look, I, th- this line is, what I did, I did to make Cardassia strong again. And, and if all Cardassians, which we assume they put this, uh, again, this high value on their power the, or the perception of their power by others, well... That it, it, it's sort of without question that he would do whatever it takes to get himself there, but also to get Cardassia there. That, that, that's how they operate. That, that is their indoctrination from their earliest age, which is to say that this is who we are. This is what we value. It all centers around how much power we have and how much power we exercise over others. That is how they define themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I, I did like that uh, exchange that we, we referenced before. Akira and Zial have such a good, it's a very short scene, but there is a lot packed into that scene. Zial saying, I used to think that my father was a hero, that even when he did something bad, he had a good reason. Now, that's interesting because, as you point out, the, the villain who is the hero of his own story, well, yeah, he does think he has a good reason. But it's the results of of those actions for others sort of be damned. He literally tells his daughter, stay here and be damned. And Kira says everyone has their reasons. That's what's so frightening. It's very easy to justify a terrible position or a terrible action um, if he's getting something out of it that he values. And then ultimately Kira says to Zial, you can't judge people by what they think or what they say, only what they do is a delicate, not that that statement is delicate, but it's a delicate position that she's in with Zial. Mm-hmm. Kira's only been around Zial for so long. 
and here making this presumption to tell Zial exactly what she thinks of Dukat, and assuming that Zial would understand and agree with that. I mean, uh, it is her father. Now, of course, it is her father who greeted her at the point of a gun uh, when she was on the in the Breen uh, uh, prison mine. But, you know, you're still playing with uh, with an emotional connection there to some extent. And I like that you said it in that way, because when when Garrick was in, you know, in his claustrophobic jail working on the transmitter, the one thing that he kept saying to himself is that Zial deserves better. Zial deserves more. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. she deserved to have his promise kept. And a promise is a promise is a very powerful statement. And that's the only way he was able to work through this this mind-crippling claustrophobia is because Garrick is in some way, and I'm going to make far more reference to this later on Mm -hmm. uh, in the episode, in our episode, he is in some way evolving in this personal code of honor, his honor to keep his promise to Zial, his honor to keep his promise to his father to escape and to live. Mm -hmm. And the master of lies is he just lying to himself to keep himself going? <laughs> or, I mean, after all, what is a lie other than trying to convince someone else or yourself of a certain point of view or an idea? Yeah. In this yeah. case, it's what he believes is his relationship with Zial and his relationship with his father, which he has been lying to himself about all this time. So oh, yeah. it's an interesting way that he's kind of juggling the logic of how am I doing this? What am I doing to myself to survive? And is this real? Yeah. You know, what's so interesting to me is that in the last episode, we saw this, I think, very important and profound moment of truth, which wasn't necessarily Garrick confronting Tane. It was the fact that he was doing that in front of Bashir. So he let mm-hmm. Bashir in on this very personal, very profound moment for him and, and basically saying like, I'm not going to tell you a thing that you should believe or, or you know, might just think is, is more obfuscation about who I am. But I'm literally going to show you a truth about me. So this is a Garrick that has been stripped down in a couple of ways. He's been stripped down by confronting his father and revealing that confrontation to Bashir. And also facing this fear of being inside the wall with his claustrophobia and being, you know, charged with the very important task of getting them all out of there. A, uh, a, a Cardassian of lesser value uh, might simply do what it takes to save himself and nobody else. But here's Garrick actually working as part of the team to get them all out of there. This is a great Great turning point for Garrick, and the reason I bring all of that up is that maybe there is a greater deal of truth in those moments than than simply him trying to convince himself of a lie, just of the convenient thing to keep himself alive. I mean, there's a lot of personal discovery that's going on in this episode. I mean, mm-hmm. let's take, for example, well, I'm, I'm glad that you actually used the Strange Bedfellows reference because... <laughs> As many of you know that listen to Mission Log, John and I rarely get to see each other's notes until we record. Mm-hmm. But this particular phrase, for some odd reason, really struck a similar chord with the both of us. And 
my, my reference is more of that war acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. And mm-hmm. the original line is from Shakespeare's The Tempest, where he wrote, misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. It's spoken by a man who has been shipwrecked and finds himself seeking shelter behind beside a sleeping monster. In this case, it's the observation that Sisko and Gowron, they have to reenact the Kidimber Peace Accords because they know that an alliance between their superpowers is the only way to survive the Dominion. Mm-hmm. And we know that the, the wedge that was put between uh, the Klingons, uh, well, at least this um, unstable relationship after the Kittimer Accords between the Klingon Empire and the Federation, we know that that was manufactured by the Dominion. Divide and conquer, right, is their, is their modus. And it worked. But now yeah. that Gowron's in the clear, he's like, well, we're, we're weakened, you're weakened, so our two weaker halves is still a stronger whole against the Dominion. Right. Oh, and by the way, they're Romulans. That's I, cool. I, I say, those are the strangest <laughs> bedfellows of all. There you go. Right? There you go. So I, yeah. I thought that was a nice development between the two of them. And it's nice to see Gowron return to form. Yes. And not be, I mean, as much as I love Bug-Eyed Gowron, be a little bit more level-headed <laughs> because he knows that the stakes are high. Yeah. Well, okay, and let's talk about uh, my other favorite Klingon in this, <laughs> Martok. Uh, first of all, he, he must have been listening to FDR. Uh, he must have heard some uh, some classic political recordings. There is no greater enemy than one's own fears, to, uh, <laughs> to turn a phrase there. I really like Martok's, first of all, his recognition of Garrick's bravery. I thought that was a great moment. And to have Worf as part of that, too. That, that was a you know, simple but powerful scene. Really nice to see that, the recognition of, of this value in somebody else. And by the way, let's look at where Worf's head is in this episode and what he's pushing himself through. He, he is pushing himself because of his sense of honor, even when Martok is telling him to stop. That honor has been satisfied. He's saying, like, look, you've done the job here. And I figure... Worf is sort of an odd bird. He's got a lot to prove to everyone. Really feels he has a lot to prove to everyone, even though he has proved himself to Martok. And I, I wonder if part of the motivation is it's his standing with himself, but it is at every moment questioning his standing with every other Klingon, because every other Klingon has basically told Worf, you're not one of us, you're not good enough, you wear the Starfleet uniform, um, we want nothing to do with you. So he's taken this like hyper-fundamentalist approach to what it means to be a Klingon, and then will push himself to the absolute ends mm-hmm. to show how much of a Klingon he is and how much of a grasp of honor he has. Really interesting scene, totally in character for Worf to do that. I wonder, though, about, as I mentioned it before, wondering if it's sort of a, a, a bug in the programming, the Jem Hadar Itakatika, uh, yielding the fight. Uh, what Was that in character or not for I mean, a Jim Hadar to do that? I think it was in character for a, a fully developed Jem Hadar. Now, mm, mm-hmm. I say so because, or I say that because Ikatika said that the, the soldiers that were fought earlier were younger. They're, they weren't as mature. They didn't understand the rules of the game, if you will. So mm-hmm. I really enjoyed... I loved, actually, how Ikatakot chooses not to kill Worf as a matter of honor and principle. 
Killing Worf was not the same as defeating him. He said something to that effect. Murder right. is not victory. Right. And if murder is not victory, then victory is not life. True mm-hmm. victory, true honorable victory is life. It demonstrates, as you said, you know, with some of these Jem'Hadar, that if they are left to their own will, their own devices, and not mm-hmm. under the control of the Vorta or the dependency on Ketracel White, mm-hmm. the Jem'Hadar may have become a very powerful and noble and honorable race. They may have, because it seems that it's in their nature to be that way because of their genetic programming, but it's the, it's the security measures of the mental manipulation through the Ketracel White that allows them to be controlled. Mm. But if you remove that, as we saw in the uh, episode where where Bashir was trying to work on a cure for the Ketracel White, mm-hmm. that leader... Kratikov. Yeah. Yes, that leader was trying to do the honorable thing to save his men. If yeah. the Jem'Hadar were just, you know, brutish, ignorant barbarians, he would have been like, eh, too bad. I have the cure in my body. The rest of you can die. Yeah. Because I don't care yeah. about you. But these were my men. He felt responsible for his men. That is a noble and honorable purpose. Yeah. And he fought for them. So yeah. I do think that it is in a certain evolution of a Jem Hadar's character. Not maybe necessarily the younger soldiers, but maybe the more seasoned soldiers. What's really scary about seeing Dukat's face on every screen is realizing that it's probably illegal for Cardassians to change the channel. So here we are in the bask of the glow of Inferno's light. And we are at the end, and that means it is time for taking a look at the morals and meanings and messages of this particular episode. And we don't say that it's exclusive to just this episode because it is part of the two-parter, and maybe some of our influence does come from In Purgatory Shadow. But, John, how did you feel about specifically about this episode by Inferno's Light and... Does any of In Purgatory Shadow influence any of your decision making? Uh, so I, you know, it was interesting to read that, uh, in particular, Ira thought that this was not served well as a two-parter. That the you had a lot of build-up, and then you're just trying to cram all the action into the the last couple of acts of this final episode. And he may be right. He he may be right that you know it would have worked better as just sort of like a feature-length thing, or if you could possibly squeeze all this down into one episode. But but more likely you do like a ninety-minute show, and that that's what you get here. I I think this is performed well i think the action is great but i'm going to say something a little weird about this particular installment which is that i think it's an excellent episode that is not done any favors by the writing the story is tense the acting is great uh the action is great and there is a build here that that accelerates uh, what much of DS9 has been leading on to for so many episodes. But but all those great things said, the dialogue in this episode is not great. Um, there are several points where the exposition gets in the way of itself, and that makes the script clunky. 
the actors are doing the best they can. And, uh, you know, look, maybe you could take a scene like Garrick, uh, Garrick sort of breakdown uh, with the claustrophobia. Maybe the very best way for Garrick to express what's going on in his head is through a monologue. Mm. But a little of that can go a long way. And when you pair that with other monologues happening in this episode, like Cisco's explanation at the end of exactly what happened while he's standing there in ops, then that makes the episode feel a bit off balance. Now, that said, I love, I cannot tell you how much I love this version of Martok. Oh, man. Here's a Klingon with honor but also with compassion and humility. And we know that he has been through some serious stuff on that uh, prison asteroid. I know JG is a great actor, and I feel like earlier, what we were getting through the Changeling version of Martok is just, that's what a lot of us have in our heads. You know, fighting, shouting about glory and honor, blah, blah, blah. This guy is way more interesting. The humility that you see in him at the very end and that scene with Cisco and Gowron oh lovely it is such a lovely moment man is he good I want to see a lot more of this guy so um, I think the episode holds up very well again the only sort of negative for me is just the the technique in the writing by having those chunks of monologue that didn't sit well with me but they were telling this great, action-packed, thrilling story. That was a lot of fun. You know, I love how JG, his final line, he goes, I would be honored. Yeah. You know, when that is when Klingon honor lines land well for me, is mm-hmm. when they say it more quietly with more distinction, you know, yeah. and more reverence to the word, as opposed to everything has honor, this has honor, that has honor. No, it's yeah. the humility of still being appreciated and entrusted with this great charge, you know, this responsibility of, of the defense of this station and the defense of other people. So I, I love that too. I think that that is something that just really resonated with me from how I appreciate or how, for how I appreciate Klingons. And this episode, uh, this episode holds it for me incredibly well, both uh, as a separate episode and as the conclusion to uh, in purgatory shadow the pacing strong i think uh, has great momentum the acting is fantastic but it's mm-hmm. the it's the depth of the character studies the quieter moments yeah this is what i love seeing in star trek and once again we see a lot of new layers in in some of my favorite characters i think some of the finest characters in ds9 garrick obviously everyone knows how much i love garrick i think he's probably the greatest character in ds9 if not in all of star trek mm-hmm. uh, ducat oh my god <laughs> Ducat is amazing. Uh, yeah. Even though that personally, I can't really root for him for for his morality play or lack thereof. But he's so fascinating to watch. Marco Lemo is so incredible as him. Mm-hmm. But we always take shots at Worf, you know, or we have a lot mm-hmm. at the beginning of this season and, and to some degree in last season, because he's always espousing honor and a tradition and being a Klingon. This is what it's like to be a Klingon and yada yada yada. But yeah. this episode. He showed us what he believes is to be Klingon, is to be unyielding in the face of danger, unwavering in his sense of duty and honor to his comrades, and unflinchingly strong. Mm -hmm. And 
if by actions are louder than words, as you said before, then his actions truly inspired Martok to understand what Worf believes is how he should be perceived as being a Klingon. Right. And I think that that won over a lot of trust when Martok said, you know, I, you know, I respect him, you know, at the end, you know, with, yeah. you know, he says, you know, he says, you know, Worf respects you. And he goes, I respect him. That's big. That's a big deal with Klingons. Yeah. And having Martok now on his side as an endorsement. Right. That's also big with Klingons. Right. So I thought that was really, really a fantastic, um, just a fantastic body of work for Michael Dorn in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think those points you just made uh, are a nice segue about the morals, meanings, messages here. I'll, I'll be brief because I, I, I think you've got some great notes coming up. So to me, you know, looking at last week, the, the theme of our discussion there was really about the relationships. It was about these personal relationships on screen, uh, like uh, Garrick and Zial, Ducat and Zial, Garrick and Tane. It was all these layers upon layers. This time we switch. The, and, and that's why I'm glad that we treated these as two separate episodes uh, rather than trying to cram it all into one podcast. We switch to politics, we switch to alliances, and we have seriously taken a, a switch to look more deeply into these ideas of honor and integrity. And uh, what you're saying about Worf's behavior here, well, we have a, a direct competing vision of this with Descartes. You know, it, we go back to that line, one man's villain is another man's hero. Hero Worf and Dukat both acting out in these, you know, profoundly dramatic ways. But Worf being forced into the situation where he's got to fight for himself is also fighting for his cellmates, his crewmates who are who are stuck back in this other room. Every minute that Worf is out there fighting, fighting, fighting is another minute that Bashir and Garrick can be in the other room trying to get things together to help them escape. Worf willing to push himself to the very end, even with Martok telling him, don't do it. This is a sign of his true sense of honor and sense of integrity. Contrast that with Dukat, whose sense of honor is simply that thing which aggrandizes himself and this very twisted view of, well, you know, whatever is good for me is also good for Cardassia. And by the same token, whatever is good for Cardassia to, to survive and appear powerful, even though they're making a deal with the devil, is good for me too. So really interested in, in both of those journeys in parallel uh, to completely opposite ends inspired by completely... Uh, different motivations and yeah you know look it's so obvious it's so simplistic but it is truly important which is what kira says to zial actions are much louder than words here is uh here's ducat who has tried to obfuscate and um present an image of himself that is very carefully crafted but then he shows his true colors and it is almost tragic then that he is leaving his daughter behind in that, but she's seen who he is. And, and I got to say again, she seems pretty well adjusted for somebody who has just had this dumped on her. So, mm -hmm. uh, so good for her. And that's why I want to see more of her. What else do we have here 
Well, for me, uh, you know, last week's episode um, in Purgatory Shadow, I I did not know where I was going to land from the beginning of this episode to the end. And it was very much mm-hmm. the same in this episode because until I saw some very specific um, specific scenes, the the actual aspect of heroism wasn't what I originally thought was going to be where I landed with this episode, but it is. And it's an interesting way of looking at heroism because it's not in the super heroic type of way. It is in the what do you do when the call to action is presented in front of you, that challenge is presented in front of you. I'd like to make a reference to the work by Joseph Campbell in the hero mythology. He has a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Hmm. and he describes the hero's narrative pattern as such. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow men. Now, coupled with a more literal and strict definition of hero... The hero comes from the noun heroism from the Greek heros, which referred to a demigod. And it is someone who shows great courage and valor is referred to as a hero. Their actions are considered to be acts of heroism. Uh, I'd like to quote the 19th century lawyer, Robert Greene Ingersoll, who said, when the will defies fear, when duty throws the gauntlet down to fate, when honor scorns to compromise with death, that is heroism. And, in relation to the major characters in this episode that we saw in the prison, think about this way and, uh, and apply what I've said to these characters. Garrick, a well-known survivalist, puts himself in harm's way in the manner of psychological torment, and he overcomes his claustrophobia because he is duty-bound to honor his father's last wish to escape and also to keep his promise to Zial, to mm-hmm. return. Mm-hmm. Now, Worf embraces the Klingon code of honor with action and not words and becomes the embodiment of pretty much Kalos, because that's what Martok said. Yeah. You truly have the spirit of Kalos within you. Right. He fights the bitter end without weapons, without armor, without comrades. He does it by himself, only fueled by the purity of Klingon honor. Now, Martok, a highly decorated general of the Klingon Empire, does what a leader does. That who's, He's been stripped of all of his trimmings of command but he still inspires his people to fight on. He boosts company morale and encourages his troops to succeed, keeping the esprit de corps alive. Mm-hmm. That's what a great leader does. And Bashir, Bashir is a 24th century intellectual who's enjoyed all of the technological sophistications and comforts of being on DS9. And now in jail, the real Bashir, not Gooey Bashir, <laughs> right, yeah. relies purely on intelligence and cunning and his basic medical training to keep people alive. He doesn't have any of his instruments. He doesn't have any of his data or computers. He basically has stone knives and bear skins mm-hmm. and his intelligence. So these are all microanalyses of the personal hero's journey in each of these characters as they are faced with overcoming their trials in a way that's only can only be described as a force from within, and that is the heroic spirit. The willingness to win against all odds, including your own faults and fears. Now, as for Dakot, hmm. because I also think he is probably the most other major character in this episode, sure. does the definition of a hero fit him as well? In the strict context of the definition, he meets all the criteria, especially how he returned with the power to bestow boons on his fellow Cardassians. Uh-huh. But 
our heroes see him as the villain. And I'm sure that we will discover that Dukat's supporters see our heroes as the villains. So in the end, it's really about one's point of view, isn't it? I, I think you have to say that. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that goes simply back to that line. One man's villain is another man's hero. Or as you were fond of saying, you know, the villain is the hero of his own story. And uh, what an interesting way to look at this episode. Thank you for that deep dive there, Norman. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. Shabam. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, Dr. Bashir, I presume. Some of the music for mission log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. This is an important message. If you, or a loved one, were serving aboard the runabout Yukon, you may be entitled to financial compensation. And transmission. Podcast. Roddenberry.com, the Roddenberry Podcast Network.